0: Well, a very warm welcome again this morning to uh, our Good Friday gathering together as Christ Central Church, whether you're here in person or whether you are meeting us online. My name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central. And in a short while, we will be celebrating communion together, remembering the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So if you are here in person, uh, you will have some, uh, a little carton of juice and a wafer on the top which you'll be able to use. If you're watching online, you may want to get uh, some bread or some juice or something else that you can use to represent the body and blood of Jesus and join with us together at the end of my message. Um, as uh, we can be one body together, whether we're online or here in person. I'm going to read from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 19 and verses 16 through 30. If you have a Bible, you might want to follow in your Bible. Otherwise, the words, if you've got good eyesight, will appear on the screen. John 19, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So... The soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it's so difficult to read the account of the crucifixion if you love Jesus. Even though we know what happens next, even though we know that there will be joy Coming in the resurrection and an eternity ahead when we will be with Jesus forever, it's difficult to read or hear of the suffering and agony of Jesus on the cross. And at this point in John's account of the crucifixion, it looks as though Jesus has been defeated, it looks as though it's all come to nothing everything that the disciples had hoped for over the three years or so that they had been with him has come crashing down. The great messianic victory that they've been anticipating had seemingly been snuffed out once and for all. And even Jesus's last words on the cross can appear like the dying words of defeat. As we just heard on the video, Mark, in his gospel, records Jesus of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The video said, why have you left me alone? And here in John's gospel, we read that his final words before dying were, it is finished. So what are we to make of that, it is finished? Is that an utterance of final defeat? It's all over, there's no hope left. No, that's not what it is at all. In order to see fully what was happening when Jesus was on, was on the cross and what he meant by it is finished, we have to go back in the Bible to see what the start was. What is it that God the Father started? What did he begin that Jesus finished? And to do that, we have to go back to the book of Genesis right at the beginning of the Bible, back. In the first chapters of Genesis, we see what we were created for. These early chapters of Genesis weren't written so that we could argue about how the world was created. They were written so that we could see what our relationship with our Creator was supposed to be like. So we see in the early chapters of Genesis that we are created in God's image. We see that we're created to work and rule over the earth on God's behalf in perfect relationship with him, in perfect relationship with each other. We see that we're intended to be free of guilt and shame and sin. We see that sin and suffering and death aren't even in the world. They weren't intended to be in the world. But we also see in Genesis 3 that we have an enemy. We have an enemy, the devil, the Satan, who comes to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And the serpent warps and twists God's words so that the first humans, Adam and Eve, begin to doubt that God is a loving and gracious and generous God, but they begin instead to see him as a restrictive, controlling overlord. God had said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that, you will certainly die. They had freedom to eat of any other tree. The serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see the subtle twisting of God's words. The enemy always wants to misrepresent God and he does it by subtly using half-truths, distorting what he says, distorting who God really is. He still does it today. He'll bring to our minds slight distortions of God's word to convince us that we're not really forgiven, that God doesn't really love us. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve and they gave in they ate from the tree, and the curse did indeed come into the world. The man and the woman were cast out of the garden, separated from God's presence because of their sin. Pain came into the world. Suffering came into the world. Death came into the world. But even before they were cast out, God pronounced judgment on the serpent, and so on Satan. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we're told that Adam's offspring would have their heels struck by the serpent, by the enemy, the devil. But we're also told that his head would ultimately be crushed by the same. That was the start That was the start. That was the beginning of the end for Satan. Yes, he would have some power, but his days were numbered. One day would come a son of Adam who would crush him, and that son of Adam would be Jesus Christ. And so, as we go on through the Old Testament, we still see Satan very much at work. We see him in the book of Job, afflicting him with much suffering but we also see him answerable to God. He can only do what God will allow him to do. He's on a short leash, God's leash. He must have hated it. And so years later, after much anticipation and waiting, Jesus was born quietly, humbly, in a small village called Bethlehem. John says in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That was his mission. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why Jesus was born, although who would have known that at the birth of a baby? Well, Satan knew. He would have been seething with rage, knowing his days were numbered. He tried to gain victory and end it there and then under Herod, who gave orders to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old so that Jesus would not live to become the king. But he was forbidden by God who spoke to Joseph in a dream about this and ensured that Jesus' family fled to Egypt before returning to Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. Even as a baby, Jesus is mightier than the devil, yet the devil is nipping at his heels relentlessly. And so Jesus grows up and becomes an adult and is baptized by John, announcing his ministry. Then he immediately goes into the wilderness, and the devil sees another chance. Jesus looks weak. He looks vulnerable. He's isolated. He's hungry. He tries to tempt Jesus, the second Adam, in the same way that he tempted the first Adam. He's bolder this time, not quite so subtle. If you are the Son of God, you see the same tactic there? Casting doubt on the truth of God. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Yet Jesus answers from Scripture. It's written, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil tries again, taking him into the temple in Jerusalem. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus replies from Scripture, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Thirdly, the devil takes Jesus to a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so the devil left him. Jesus resists the devil where Adam and Eve did not. The devil's wanting to run his own Bible study with a twisted interpretation of what Scripture means. Eve was taken in by it. Jesus wasn't. He obeyed his father. And the good news is that the Bible teaches us that in Christ, we too can resist temptation where Adam could not, and we could not in Adam. We have to be able to recognize the lies of the enemy. They're subtle. He doesn't just come out and say there's no God. He doesn't just tempt us with the obvious things, although he does tempt us with the obvious things money, sex, power. He tempts us with subtle lies. God just wants you to be happy. Surely it's okay to live like this because that's what God wants, happiness. You just need to live your truth. Your feelings are a really good indicator of reality. These are the subtle lies the enemy will speak to us now. They sound pretty plausible. We have to learn to recognize them. The way we do that is get to know the truth of God's word more. We can't spot the counterfeits of Satan if we're not fluent in the truths of God. Jesus knew the truth of Scripture. We need to know that truth too. Jesus' victory over Satan was getting ever closer. He gathered some of his disciples who began to find that they had authority over demonic powers when they went, went out in Jesus' name. They, went, they came back to Jesus celebrating this, uh, that they would cast out demons, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of Satan is crumbling. The devil's domain is being reclaimed. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then in the week leading up to Passover, Jesus entered Jerusalem to cheering and celebration and the crowd welcomed their Messiah. But this joyful celebration would quickly turn to fear and confusion. Judas, one of Jesus' friends, was tempted by wealth to turn against him. He handed Jesus over to the authorities. It looked for all the world as though the devil had the upper hand again, but he knew his end was coming. He had one last shot at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. It was there that Jesus faced his final temptation from the enemy, the temptation to avoid going to the cross altogether. Jesus knew that his mission from the Father was to go to the cross and die. He knew he wouldn't only face the agonies that would rack his body through the pain and the suffocation as he hung there on the cross, but he knew he would be facing separation from his Heavenly Father for the first time, for the only time since eternity. That's why he echoed the words of Psalm 22 when he said, My God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He knew why God had seemingly forsaken him, had forsaken him, because he knew it was the only way to complete his father's mission. He knew that on the cross he would be dying as a substitute for us. He knew he was going to take the ultimate death and separation from God instead of us. He'd lived a perfect, sinless life. He was the only one who didn't deserve the Father's wrath against sin. He was the only one who could take the punishment for us and bring us back into the presence of God, into relationship with Him. He would be experiencing the wrath of God poured out against the sin of the world, yet not being poured on us, but poured on Him, the Son of God. And He knew it would be almost unbearable. He prayed in the garden to God at the temptation of leaving his mission, deserting it. Is there any other way, Jesus prayed. If there is, then spare me this agony to come. Yet he knew there was no other way to complete God's mission. He knew that this was his mission, his alone he knew it was what he had to do and so he said yet not my will father but yours and so he silently went to the cross like a lamb going to the slaughter he didn't answer back he didn't defend himself to those condemning him sentencing to death he knew his fight wasn't against them in fact they were the ones he was dying for father forgive them they don't know what they're doing He prayed on the cross. No, his fight was against the devil, the enemy. It always had been. And he knew exactly what he was doing. And so on the cross, that serpent, the devil, took a final bite at Jesus' heel as the nail pierced it. But despite that nail, indeed, Because of it, Jesus finally crushed the serpent's head. It is finished, he cried. And it was. It was. Jesus had destroyed the devil's works, the power of sin had been broken. And in his resurrection, as we'll see on Sunday, he demonstrated that the power of death had also been defeated. It's finished. So now when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, his victory becomes our victory. Paul writes to the Romans and says in chapter 16, verse 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan has been defeated. He's been crushed. He's been bound by Jesus. He awaits his final punishment. For now, he still screams his lies, but he's bound. In Christ, he has no power over us. We don't have to listen to him. And Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us the fate that awaits him. John sees it in a vision. He says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what awaits Satan. So today, on this Good Friday, Jesus' cry of it is finished on the cross is not a cry of despair it's not a resigned cry of defeat. It's a cry of victory. It's more like the cry of someone who's run a great marathon and crossed the finishing line and he gasps, I've done it. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I've, it's finished. I've done it. The victory has been won. This truly was a good Friday. The mission that Jesus came to fulfill, sent by the Father, has finished. He's done it. He's victorious. And the victory can be enjoyed by us if we put our hope and our trust in him. And so, brothers and sisters, in Christ, we can come this morning and we can remember that great victory. We can celebrate. We can join with Christ through communion. Like Kelly said, that victory, yes, it was for the world. But it was for us. It was for each one of us. It was for you. And we can come and join with Christ through communion. And we're going to do that now. We do it here at 140 Clark Street. If you're watching online, you can join us from home if you want to find your little carton of juice and a wafer. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. Debbie's got some spare if you're here and you don't have one. This is for those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus, who've accepted this. You know what? if you've never accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've never understood that you can be forgiven by Jesus because of Him dying on the cross, if you've never given your life to follow Him and Him alone, you can do that in this morning. You can come to know Him this morning. But if you've not done that yet, and please just watch, maybe pray while others celebrate this because this is for those of us who know we are his, who know we are his. Just before he died, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples and he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And he took the wine and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. And he urged his disciples and by implication us to break bread and drink in remembrance of his death on the cross and all that means to us. So as we eat this wafer, or bread, we remember not only what Jesus did on the cross for us, his body broken for us, we joined with him. His death is our death. We're declaring that we are united in Christ. What he did on the cross is a present reality in our life. We've died to our old ways of sin and rebellion against God, and we joined in relationship with him. And as we drink the juice or the wine, we remember his blood shed for us on the cross, which cleanses us from our sin and it washes us clean, declaring us to be forgiven. We can stand before God, holy and righteous. So let's do that now. Joel's gonna come and play and then maybe we'll sing again at the end while we eat and drink and reflect on his love. Just as Joel plays, we may want to pray briefly with those near us we'll conclude by singing, but let's just take this together now, the bread and the juice, remembering his body and his blood. God bless you.